Before we start the show today, we are rapidly approaching 400 episodes and we'd love to hear your thoughts. Whether you've listened to the show once or 400 times, we'd love it if you could leave us a review. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify or your preferred podcast app and leave us a review and a comment. We do love reading them and it helps us make the show even better. Thank you, everyone. Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Sarah Kachansky and today we're going to be discussing open banking. Open banking in the UK is now two years old. So in today's show, we want to discuss the first two years, how far open banking has come, has it grown up yet and how much further is there to go? So joining me today, I have some fantastic guests all putting open banking to use and we want to dig into their experiences with it. So first up, we have Shafali Roy, COO and CCO at TrueLayer. How are you today, Shafali? I'm really well, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for coming along. Um, can you just give us a quick reminder of what TrueLayer does and how you're utilising open banking? Yeah, sure, absolutely. We're a London-based technology startup and we build APIs that allow applications to access their end users' data with their consent. And we also uh, have a payment product that allows payment initiation. Brilliant. Thank you. I'm also joined by Ollie Betts, co-founder and chief product officer at OpenWorks. Um, you guys, one of the things you do is that you power Tully, who we've had in a couple of our shows here before. That's the debt management uh, program provider. Um, you also do other things. So can you tell us a little bit more about what OpenWorks does? Sure, yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so OpenWorks, we uh, make open banking work and we do that through building applications that help real people solve real problems. Uh, using open banking is the enabler to that. So Tully is one of those applications we've built to help um, the 20 million people in the UK with money worries um, take control uh, over their repayments and take the stress out of debts that they have. So using open banking to hopefully help people get back on top of their money. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, also joined by Simon Vanskalina, who is CTO of Fronted. Thank you for joining us, Simon. Thanks for having me back. Uh, can you give us a quick recap of what Fronted is and how it works? Sure. So Fronted's a brand new startup. We're going to be helping people move into apartments by um, taking away the, the burden of having to pay their rental deposit up front. Um, we'll be doing that as a, um, a lender. But we're here because we, um, we, we're going to use open banking to basically help um, do the affordability scoring. Um, so I've switched over from being at Monzo building open banking to um, being a consumer of open banking. So I've seen it from both sides. I'm sure you have some stories to tell on both sides as well. Sure. Um, and last but by no means least, we have Kieran McHugh, open banking lead at Monzo. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Kieran. Hey. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you found running open banking uh, for a challenge bank like Monzo? I don't think Monzo needs any introduction. Right, yeah, sure. So um, I've basically taken um, Simon's position that he was in before. <laughs> oh, um, wow. So big boots to fill. He's better um, at me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think it's actually been a, um, a real well-in for me, a very steep learning curve. Um, I'm actually very new to the open banking scene. I've been involved maybe for, for less than a year. Uh, my, my background is actually um, a back-end engineer, so I did um, computer science. So I think the most challenging bits for me have been to really interpret, understand the legislation, do the project management side, um, and actually like, maintaining the relationships with the, the 50 different companies that use our APIs now. So only a small job then? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, welcome to the show, everybody. Um, let's get started. So um, I'm going to start by asking the big question. Um, so it's it's been two years since open banking regs, uh, rules and regs came in here in the UK. And yes, we all know that the CMA9 have taken a while to, to get their acts together. Um, what, what has actually changed in the last two years that, that you can really point to um, as, you know, examples of, 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 of progress or, or, or not progress? So for me, the big thing was two years ago, we, we launched Monzo's um, API with the AIS API, we called it. It was not the open banking standard. And Monzo at the time had about 100,000 customers. Um, since then, Monzo is now, I think, the fifth largest bank. So less than five years, the fifth largest bank. And Monzo was one of the first banks to choose to implement the open banking API. Uh, and uh, as I'm sure Kieran will say, it's been it's been pretty great for us. And now, as a consumer of those APIs, um, I'm happy to say like it works very, very well for us. Um, the API does basically everything we need to do to run fronted the company, um, and we couldn't have we couldn't have built this company without these APIs existing and being ready. So we were, a big concern for us was that we would be launching into a market where open banking wasn't mature enough. And I think we've basically now convinced ourselves that it's it's on the cusp of being great. 
And um, mm. can you just explain a little bit more there what you mean by being one of the first to choose to use them? So, so some people were, you know, choosing so more, to do so, and some people didn't have the so choice. I think Kieran should answer this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think. Right from the beginning, I think Simon was very, very interested in um, kind of making sure that we had this provision, even though we were not obliged to have it in place. So this was very much like a CMA9 thing to begin Mm -hmm. with. Um, So Monzo was not included in the sort of initial order there, uh, but we really wanted to offer this. So we had, um, right from our inception, this idea of uh, of a developer API. We offered this to just like hobbyists who wanted to like hack with their bank account. That is actually like how I first found out about Monzo. (laughs) I was the uh, 20th person ever to get a Monzo card because I joined them uh, for one of those hackathons that they did uh, in the early days. Um, so it was super important to us um, when you know when this concept of AIS came about that we were like one of the first to have an API in place. And how is Monzo using open banking APIs now? Yeah, so there's like this um, there's kind of a, um, a sort of double um, role that we play. So we play a role as as a bank. So we provide these APIs to third parties who want to use them. Um, and now what we're doing is um, as of this quarter, we're really starting to think uh, very carefully about how we can uh, take advantage of open banking and make open banking work for Monzo. So I think there's some really exciting uh, features that are coming up soon. So consuming the APIs that other people have built to yeah, those standards. Yeah, that's right. So we do both. So by, by virtue of being a bank, we are also mm-hmm. by default uh, what we call an AISP and a PISP. So we have the, those permissions to provide uh, account information services and also payment initiation as well. Brilliant. Ollie, how about you? Yeah, for us, I guess we're we're one of those sides. So we're consuming Monzo APIs, other bank APIs. Um, I think from a just a scale perspective, things have just changed unbelievably. So I remember 13th of January 2018 sitting in our <laughs> office with the developer, like making our first <laughs> API call, uh, which was very exciting at the time. One API call, one customer. <laughs> um, I, well, it wasn't to Monzo, unfortunately. Oh, what? I wanted it to be. <laughs> it was actually to Lloyd's. But pretty closely followed by some others. And that was kind of an exciting milestone. We now make uh, 100 million API calls a month more. So just the scale... Uh, is that's just, just you making That's just million. us. That's not the whole ecosystem. Um, and then something that's changed a lot as well is where I personally spend my time. So from in 2018, spent uh, time I'll never get back in lots of dreary workshops, debating slash arguing technical standards and how this was going to work or how it wasn't working into now spending a lot of time really building products on top of those APIs that's helping consumers and genuinely going to help and add loads of value to millions of people. I think that's kind of on a personal basis, things have just shifted, um, not as fast as we would have liked, but they really have into focusing much more on end users and less around uh, kind of, again, those debates about technical standards. You've got, got through the, um, I suppose it's through the, the, the regulatory weeds <laughs> Yeah, necessary ones. Yes, um, yeah. But uh, yeah, and I think just the, but also just the um, the conversation in the industry with the people who are innovating, it's, we've kind of been freed up. So you had a lot of people, people who wanted to disrupt the market, wanted to make a change for consumers, sat in workshops talking about technical standards where I'm not on my best. A lot of people aren't at their best. It's kind of once that's out of the way, uh, like Simon's business fronted, you can then really start to kind of make a difference, unlock the value. Presumably those standards are not going away, though. The conversation will continue to evolve. That's a general question for everybody in the room. But presumably those conversations aren't, they're not completely done now. There's going to be other stages that are going to come and you're going to have to go back to having, okay, what does the next bit look like? What does the next bit look like after that? Definitely. And that's one of the big things is, is just understanding whether or not the Competition Markets Authority is comfortable with the amount of competition that's been created by the standards that exist. And we're, I mean, from Fronted's point of view, we're always um, on the lookout for um, extra functionality that will be coming down the pipeline, things like more information about the customer so we can, you know, use the customer's name when we address them. Um, things like um, variable recurring payments is something that that's, um, a lot of people have been asking for but, you know, it hasn't happened yet or hasn't arrived yet. So that'd be something like a direct debit that goes out every month, not a direct debit, I suppose, but something that's pulled every month from your account that might be £50 one month and £40 the next. Sure, it's just like a standing order. But okay, the merchant yeah. can change the amount of money, change the amount each month. Mm-hmm. And Shafali, so, how about you? What have yeah, you seen in the last two years? So I think for us, I mean, I echo uh, these three gents. Um, what has been really interesting has been consumer awareness. Uh, we are a B2B platform. And so end users are becoming more sophisticated and more aware, really, of what's actually happening in the market. They also have more choice, more competition, better services, better prices. And I say this as a consumer because I, I kind of love it because I use a lot of the products that um, are, are API powers. So that's been kind of fantastic. And what has also been wonderful is the UK has been really a leader in setting the standards internationally. So when I look internationally as a business, we look at Australia or Asia. 
even if you go to America to some degree, they're talking about this thing called open banking. And arguably, I think we were one of the first countries in the world to start it. Yes, it came out of PSD too, but the real nuts and bolts of what open banking is and what does it mean has really come from the UK. So I was holidaying in Australia recently. That's where my folks live. And I was meeting with regulators and ministers there and businesses there. And one of the first things everybody was saying is, this is kind of great. And it's so good that the UK started. We made mistakes, arguably, no question. But the fact that this this movement has started about thinking, how can banks uh, share their data, which really is not the bank's data, it's the consumer's data, and on top of that, build products and services um, in a better way, in a smarter way, more efficient way. And so that conversation is very exciting. And I agree totally with Ollie. I mean, sitting in, in, in workshops on tech stuff, it's so boring. So <laughs> have this is the really exciting part, which two years later, you get to think about, you know, People like Simon working on Fronted, which is a super interesting product and, and going to help the, the British consumer. That's kind of phenomenal. And that's really what we've worked for really two years to get to, which is these fantastic conversations. I have to say that doesn't sound like much of a holiday if you're spending it in uh, meetings no, with regulators. So my, my folks live in Australia, and so I go home four or five times a year. But for us, Australia is a really interesting landscape. Uh, we participated in the Senate inquiry for the Australian uh, government last year on open banking. We have had a hand in crafting some of their rules. Uh, they've gone actually way further than the UK because they're looking at open data, not just... Um, Banking, um, and actually, the, I was. I point out the CFA does actually have a call for information right now about yeah. extending open finance here in the UK mm-hmm. as well. And uh, everybody who's listened to this who's a, is interested in that should get involved in that. That will be such a huge thing. I'm going to say thank you, Simon, because I sit on the Open Finance Working Group at the SCA. <laughs> so, yeah. So there you go. I've I've been involved in those conversations. Yeah. I, I promise you, I've, I've already put my two cents. It's so in. exciting. It, it's really great. And so the Australians have done it in a really interesting way. Which said, let's take open data. Let's do the finance vertical first. Then we do energy and data. I mean, and, and telcos. That's kind of great. And thinking about this whole ecosystem of data that is owned by the consumer and shared with reciprocity. Um, the Open Finance Working Group that the FC and HMT run is terrific because they're also thinking that. And weirdly, we're, re- we're reverse learning because we're also looking at Aus- the Australian landscape and saying, well, what did we ro- do wrong that they ignored? But what are they doing right that we should take here? And so the Open Finance Workshop and what's going to come, uh, and certainly in March, is very exciting. And I think that also gives you a much more holistic user experience for the individual who buys all these products. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been saying for a long time the utility will come for a lot of people when you can you can have everything in one place. I imagine particularly for the sort of thing you're looking at, Ollie, you having um, credit cards in there as well, loans, debts from other providers. Um, just to take it back to the consumer perspective for a minute, um, you sort of mentioned some of the you know exciting new propositions coming to market, but there has sort of been a question uh, that's been rumbling on about, you know, do customers know about open banking do customers need to know about open banking? Now, I know where I stand on this and my position hasn't much changed, but what are, what are your thoughts on this, um, Kieran, Ollie? Yeah, yeah I think um, I don't know what your position is. I probably should. <laughs> Mine's very strongly that um, we shouldn't spend too much time worrying about consumers being aware of open banking when I put it in the context of uh, a regulatory framework or some technical standards. Open banking in terms of what it makes possible and um, both uh, freedom to use your own information access to better products and services, more efficient ones that Shafali mentioned, uh, more competition in banking. All of those things are definitely something that um, consumers are becoming more aware of, becoming more empowered to access. So I think we, we focus a lot of time on how do we educate consumers about better financial services uh, that are mm-hmm. enabled by open banking. So how do we make people get excited about what's um, what's possible? How do we get them excited about the end user benefit? Um, so I think and as a as a result of great products coming to market being put in the hands of end users, we're seeing awareness um, be raised. I think there's a really interesting dynamic that's happening when you expand that to open finance and beyond that into open data, which is there's definitely uh, at the higher level more consumer awareness, desire and drive for freedom of information and ownership of their data, which we're sort of open banking's kind of um, unlocking or, or making it real in terms of how that can help you in your everyday life. I think that combination is really powerful. So I guess the summary is consumers um, really want to get them aware of what's possible by taking ownership of their data and the products that make that possible in a financial 
services context through open banking. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, my perspective on it is very much that we should focus on you know what what the benefits are of the services it provides rather than the rules and regs and in fact the technology itself. With the caveat that people do need to know who is accessing their data and where their data is going, and I think mm-hmm. that that's a piece that can't be ignored. You have to fully understand what you what what you're turning on and off and how you turn it on and off as well. And I think um, Faith Reynolds from the Open Banking uh, Working Group and she does lots of other work in this space. You know, it's been a huge advocate of this, saying those customer controls need to come in quicker and be better yep. um, because the the minute you mess up on that and their customer's data ends up somewhere they don't want it to end up or or something goes wrong, you know, even so far as saying, God forbid, a breach or something, then that's going to turn them off the whole thing. And all of a sudden they will all know all about open banking yeah. because yeah. it just takes that one thing to go wrong. Just to go back to the, um, the question about awareness. So of I course, think... Yeah. Um, Counterintuitively, I think that low customer awareness of open banking should actually be considered like a success metric if people don't know about it. So um, like very deliberately when we designed uh, Monzo's authentication flow, so this is like the, the connection flow in the app, uh, we don't include the words open banking anywhere in our app and not, not really on our website um, either. Um, what we think is that open banking is is really this like legal, uh, regulatory, technical framework. And it, the easy thing to do is to sort of take all of this complexity and to, to push it onto the customer and say, you know, please educate yourself about how this works. Um, and we don't think that's how it should be at all. We think people should just be able to use the product without worrying about, you know, the terminology that we use in, in like the fintech sphere. Yeah, I mean, I don't think many customers know what faster payments is or backs <laughs> for that matter, you know, or chaps. I don't think they understand what that is or that, how that works or the fact that, you know, why, why does my payment only come out the next morning or why does TFL only take 10 pence when I tap my contactless card? It doesn't seem to bother them or stop them using those systems. Mm-hmm. So, um just to bring it round, sort of maybe to the banks, um, and uh, Kieran, you can speak from from well, I suppose Simon as well from being inside a bank, but um, from the other from the outside, you know, how much are banks actually embracing the possibilities of of what open banking offers, and how much do you think they're still stuck in that this is a regulatory thing, we've got to do the bare minimum, let's just get it over and done with. So I I think I've um, let me say again. I think the problem with banks is they spend a lot of time thinking about making money because they're all commercial businesses and that's right. And banks need to, when they're prioritizing what they're going to work on, they have to either, it has to be to service a regulatory requirement or to make money. There isn't really much space in between for a commercial organization like a bank. Um, and a lot of the next parts of open banking, or a lot of parts um, that the competition of mar- a lot of parts that the market would like to see things like variable recurring payments, things like better information about the customer, like their date of birth and their their home address, and and things that um, that um, people building fintechs that might consume this data would like to see. There's no commercial use case f- for right now, and I think it's up to the like those markets could be created by regulation. The regulation, like. The banks will do it if they all do it. If they all walk in lockstep, they have no objection to doing it. They just don't want to do it without, you know, their, without the other banks having to do it as well. They just want, like, the banks don't object to doing these things. They just, there's no commercial use case for it and it's not a requirement, so they're just not going to do it, right? So I think that the future of open banking really has to be, like, looking at those use cases and listening to what um, what consumer advocacy groups and fintechs want and then actually taking that back in and prioritizing it and building it. Um, how about you, Shvali? Do, do you work with some of these banks mm. directly? So yeah. what have you seen? What's your perspective on so this? So over the uh, sort of two years that open banking has been, there has been a shift in the bank's perception. So initially, they did think of this as a compliance project. They did think of it as we have to tick a box, psc 2s come in, and goody, goody, I have to now get some $8 bazillion to make sure that we are compliant by, you know, the 13th of January or the 14th of September or March or whenever it is the new, uh, the final uh, regs are coming in. And they didn't really think about it as a business opportunity. So we take about 18 months forward and we are talking to a handful of the high street banks about them being clients of ours because they finally realized there's a business opportunity here and they can actually build fantastic products. I mean, I say fantastic, quote unquote, with banks because how long do they take to make things? But all things being equal, um, they could potentially build some really fabulous products uh, with their customers, for their customers and for customers who are not theirs, but who are from other banks and who they want to to poach. So we are having final conversation and a lot of conversations with business units and product units in banks to talk about actually how open banking can work for them. There's some of them are international. So they have this idea of what 
the versatility of cross-border payments. And so how can open banking facilitate that? Um, They're talking about PFM-type products, lending products, uh, mortgages, investment products, pension products. And so it's literally this entire gamut of of financial services that they want to provide to their their customers. So the the shift has changed and people are being more um, aware of it and banks are taking notice of it. Um, I was at a dinner a couple of months ago where I heard someone say, and this was like a VC dinner, and someone said, banks don't make enough money. So I nearly choked on my water, the first thing. And I was like, are oh, you joking? I can't believe I'm hearing this. Um, and, you know, I used to work at Goldman. So, I mean, banks do work, do do make a lot of money. But it was really bonkers because that was the argument that was being used for something like premium APIs and things like, well, if you don't have date of birth, well, why don't you pay the bank per API call or per customer? And uh, if the end user consents, and then you get the you get the uh, date of birth. And the date of birth is not a data field uh, prescribed as by PSD2. So if you want it, pay for it, which is such a, a really counterproductive, counterintuitive narrative, really, when you think about how the ecosystem should make it work. So there's a lot here for the OBIE, for the CMA, for HMT and FCA to kind of go, how do we make this more equal? The whole point of this was an anti-competitive drive. So let's figure out how we do that better. But fundamentally, think of the consumer. What is the consumer wanting and what do they want to make their financial lives better? And then we start there and work backwards. So the work people like Faith Reynolds and other consumer rights groups are doing is so fabulous because they're advocating for those and for those voices. Um, one of the things, and I'll, I'll end on this note, which is one of the things we do is we work with the Ministry of Justice to to power their legal aid tool. And that's kind of phenomenal, thinking about how can open banking change the way we help disadvantaged people in our community so that our legal system works for them. That's phenomenal. And those are absolutely day-to-day real changes in people's lives. So it, it's definitely for good. I think um, I'd like to come back to premium APIs mm. at uh, perhaps a later point, but I'll just pass over to Ollie. I don't know if you're actually working with banks directly or if you just have a, a perspective perhaps as, you know, both of you, I'd say, probably infrastructure players in mm. this space. Yeah, we we do. So banks are our clients, I guess, um, um, and possibly in a diff- different way to Truelayer as well, where they're consuming um, – they're not kind of building products directly on top of our APIs. They're consuming the products we've built on top of the APIs. So right. I guess I'm not that surprised that – Banks have taken some time to move from seeing this as regulatory um, and that compliance project to how do we unlock value from this for our customers. And part of that's because banks aren't typically good at building products. They're not good at building solutions. They're not good at innovating. So I guess what I think has been happening really is third parties and fintechs have been identifying the problems for consumers that you can solve with open banking and creating the products and then, uh, and that's what we do. Um, we uh, built a few businesses before and know how hard it is to directly acquire customers. Mm-hmm. So our business model is we build those great products and we distribute them through banks and we distribute them through larger providers who have captive customers. So, for example, Tully might be a service that's offered by one of the CMA9. Yeah, I mean, uh, Tully's slightly, just, slightly different, yeah. but it, it is in the fact that it's a, it's a B2B2C product. But mm-hmm. just to explain that... It's um, taking the same approach, which is what are the problems consumers are encountering? How can we solve them through open banking, which for me, open banking is ultimately um, access to better information about that consumer and uh, an ability to uh, remove friction from experiences. And so with uh, Tully, we solve the problem of, well, what do you do as a bank with a consumer who's not paying you anymore? Uh, you want to retain that relationship. You want to help that customer. It's normally a temporary position. Um, banks are, uh, haven't solved that problem. Um, so we've solved that problem. We've used open banking to help people understand where they are financially, restructure their repayments, repay flexibly and get back on their feet. Um, the nuance with Tully is the way we go to market is we've had to retain it as a direct consumer yep. brand because consumers have debts with more than one bank. Yep. Um, so as an example, Monzo refer through to Tully where they identify consumers that might be struggling. And that uh, independent brand is helpful because the consumer can can interact with a different party mm-hmm. than their bank. Which they might not want to if they're, if they're struggling. Typically, yeah. And even if it's just an admin problem mm-hmm. of I've got on average, people have six different creditors they owe money mm-hmm. to, so it's six different conversations and we can make it one. Or it's just, I'm really a bit scared about inter- interacting with my banks. I might say something wrong that might cause me to get into more trouble. Um, here's a completely independent party I can 
I can engage with this problem. So just very quickly, the sort of uh, tools perhaps that a bank might use, somebody would come and uh, build perhaps a, a PFM tool on top of Tully and then a bank might adopt that PFM tool yeah, well, into their own. Yeah, on t- we, take it, we take the kind of open banking APIs. Uh, so a good example is um, we do a lot in and around assessing consumers' affordability. It's a problem right, in okay. mortgage lending, yep. any time of lending and when people struggle to repay. Mm-hmm. And so we've done a lot of work on how can you enable someone to self-serve income and expenditure assessments rather than traditionally how it's done, which is either a very long and painful phone call mm-hmm. or in extreme sending in paperwork and pay slips. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of take a problem. I think you guys were talking about a job to be done. Yes, take that yep. and say, how can I use um, a, a data that sat in a bank account previously, um, unlock that, use other digital uh, customer experiences, and um, change the way a process works. And then provide that service to, to the bank. Yeah, and then again, it's really for us, it's just back to distribution, which is, I'd love to have, I'd love to have built kind of 10 banks by now. Um, <laughs> but it's not always easy to acquire customers. And actually for us, it's kind of, can we have a big impact on end users? We don't feel precious about doing that directly if we can do it through the technology, like TrueLayer do as well. It's That's exciting and adds value, so... Yeah, absolutely. And there's a huge place for them within this ecosystem. Um, Kieran, I just want to give you a, a, a chance to have a, your say on whether you think banks are embracing the possibilities or whether you think you're, you know, you're doing the bare minimum. I, 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 don't, I don't imagine you'll tell me you're doing the bare minimum. but uh... No, I'd like to think we're going a bit, a bit beyond the bare minimum. Um, so I think like nobody at Monzo, or I hope anywhere, comes to work and thinks, you know, today I'm going to do the absolute bare minimum that I need to do in order to like satisfy. I mean, some people probably have those days. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe from time to time. But, I, but broadly speaking, I don't think anybody thinks like that. Um, so ultimately at Monzo, we, we feel like we're building our legacy. Uh, we, we want to be able to look back and say, you know, we did the, the best job for our customers and also for third parties as well. Um, and I think like having worked on this project, I found this... Um, I guess like newfound respect almost for big banks. Um, I've seen how hard it is um, firsthand uh, to sort of interpret the regulation to like apply it in other ways. Um, I've also seen how difficult it is to implement it um, technically as well. So I'm in like a uniquely privileged position because um, we stand on the shoulders of giants. We have this like amazing technology platform that we can use and it makes my job very easy. But for big banks, uh, you know, where they're wrestling with like legacy, um, you know, hardware, software, um, it would be an absolute nightmare. And ultimately, I think open banking can only really be as good as these, like the substrate upon which it is built. So if, if that substrate or medium, in this case, like mainframes is bad, then it, it really holds back open banking as well. Yeah, I mean, it's an advantage you have, um, which is, sort of, I suppose, it's slightly accidental, but in the sense of like just being newer, but um, it exactly, means it's yeah. much easier for yeah. you to do this stuff. Right. I'm going to take a quick pause here just to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Finnovate Europe. Finnovate Europe is an event happening next month in Berlin on the 11th to the 13th of February. Finnovate Europe is the continent's premier fintech event focused around live seven-minute demos of the latest fintech innovations. You can network with more than 1,200 senior level attendees and gain insights from 150 expert speakers who will be sharing their insights on the future of finance. For more information, visit finnovateeurope.com and quote VIP code 11FS for a 20% discount on your registration. Again, that code is 11FS. Okay, let's get back to the show. So, um... OBIE trustee Imranji, we call him Imranji around here because... Um, You've had two years to learn his name. Uh, uh, or yeah, longer, that, really. That is true, that is true. I promise to learn it next time. Um, he claimed that 2020 would be the year of open banking. Uh, is he right? I think I agree 2020 could be the year that we kind of move to mass adoption. So I, whenever you're looking at emerging technologies, kind of what percentage of population have we got using that new technology are we actually in a are we kidding ourselves and it, is it just the early adopters is it just ourselves and um people in the fintech bubble using it i think we, we've already we're at well over a million users we're kind of getting to i think actually if you take um consumers who have been embracing um sharing bank data for longer using things like screen scraping you're probably at three million in the uk that's about five percent uk adult population it's not bad um i think this is the year we could get to the kind of magic 15 percent 
jump over the chasm and be into mass adoption. So I think that's really exciting. No I, don't, I don't want to kind of overanalyze Imran's comment, <laughs> but kind of I wouldn't want to box it into one year. Like this yeah. is the start of a journey. I think it's, um, yeah, we need to be looking at kind of not just what can we achieve in 2020, but kind of what, again, we've got the platform in place now and we've already talked about we're now starting to build the use cases that unlock that. I think it needs to be, yeah, it could, could definitely be the year where we get mass adoption. That would be exciting, so where, I, yeah, where everyone's kind of using it or you bump into someone and they're using it while you're talking to them. That, that's kind of where you, I would like to get to. Yeah, I think, I think I agree with you to the point that I think that the last couple of years have actually been the years of the infrastructure players. So I think mm-hmm. people like TrueLayer mm-hmm. um, and, you know, Plaid for that matter, though I know that they're only recently in the European market, it's, they've done incredibly well, you know, built businesses. And I think to a certain extent, banks have kind of, come, as you hinted at earlier, Siobhan, realise that they kind of need your help at this point. Absolutely. They thought, I think that there was a lot of thinking at the beginning, oh, we can do this on our own. Now, mm. Monzu may well have been able to do it on your own, but, you know, the big CMA Absolutely. and I were probably like, yeah, we actually yeah, find no, it really, we need to help. Yeah. So yeah, no. my interpretation of it would be that it's the year of, as you say, the open banking pr- uh, propositions as mm. opposed to open banking infrastructure. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if anybody else has a different... I completely agree. It's the second wave of companies is the ones that can rely on the first wave of companies existing and being fairly reliable. And I spent a ton of time thinking about, like, is is it good enough yet to start a company and to take VC money and to try and build something on top of... And I'm fairly satisfied that it's it's at a point now where you can reliably, safely build and, and rely on something working. I think that's something that, uh, sorry, I was going to say that we, um, about 12 months ago when we were uh, either doing this kind of podcast or when we were doing uh, you know, the various conferences, the conference circuit, so many of the third parties who had built their business models on using open bankings were so, so frustrated about the, the reliability, I mean, the, the number and, and quantity of, of types of API out there, but just the reliability was killing them. Um, and I think... It's still not perfect. No, no, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest it was. I think I saw some stats from Tink who were saying we're still at the point where it's the equivalent of one in 15 of your emails getting lost, which yeah, is, is still not there's, great. There's some banks where it's 50% of um, authentication flows that begin don't complete. And that's mm-hmm. just not acceptable. And there needs to be some sort of ratcheting up of the requirements and the oversight by the FCA and the CMA for those those big organisations that just aren't quite doing a good enough job. Like they need to they need to be pushed to do a good enough job. I mean, the market will eventually get there. People will eventually realise that, like, oh, this thing that I wanted to use that is like really core to my financial life um, is popping up a warning saying, by the way, the bank that you're using isn't very good, and perhaps you should switch to Monzo. So I think the market will eventually push people to, to use better banks. So it will become a, a requirement. I was wondering yeah, if that's then. a point actually to bring back the subject of premium APIs because if the banks think they can make money out of the APIs, will they make them more reliable? Is it, that is that a, a that's such a good argument though, isn't it? Like because we'll give it to you, take all the stuff for free, which is kind of clunky and it sort of works. But the ones that you have to pay for, um, they'll work better. And I, I suspect it's because we'll say, well, what's the SLA? Just like mm-hmm. we're being asked what the SLA is. But I, I would hope that they see it as a better thing for the market to have more reliability and more consistency. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have tons of people who are leaving the the high street banks mm-hmm. to go to fabulous people like Monzo and Starling and all these other banks on on the market that are digital first, um, that have embraced technology, that are so happy to think about the user's uh, happiness really at the forefront of an experience with finance of all things. I mean, you know, money is money, but it's not really as exciting as it ought to be. But that sort of care and attention which I think all of the banks on the high street certainly are looking to see, uh, oh gosh, we're really losing customers to all these great uh, new banks coming up, up and coming, that they're finally realizing, the business people are realizing, why did we not get there? What did we miss? Who didn't tell us stuff? And of course, you blame the compliance people. But I feel um, very sorry for compliance people, just as, yeah, a, I sign as, my career as a compliance officer. So I'm, <laughs> I'm with you. But it, it's that sort of stuff, which is the, the realization that it could actually be good for a PL. Mm-hmm. And it's finally coming, finally coming to the fore. Good for a PL without having to charge, like in, the, in a sort of a, a broader sense rather Absolutely. than literally I mean, just it, another revenue line. Yeah, but also we should think about customer retention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, if you you're know, going on that alone. If I'm trying to do this thing on my Barclays, Santander, whatever app for 10 times and it's not working, I'll go somewhere else and try something else. I think it's a, yeah, it's an interesting, um, if you pick up on a th- few things people said, it does feel like it's kind of uh, an iterative cycle here. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of two years of infrastructure build that needed to be done. 
then quite rightly banks almost saying, well, until there's use cases with end users, then I'm not going to do any more work to improve. I think we're now in a position, we're moving to a position where you have scale users. So um, we're fortunate enough, one of our clients kind of brings with them half a million small business customers using open banking every day, many, many times a day to check their business is okay and check their cash flow. So we can now go to banks saying, your APIs need to perform because if they don't, it impacts all of these customers. And we've seen with that client, their customers, because they have very vocal small business customers (laughs) on the forums, going on forums saying, I've just switched bank account because my previous bank's APIs didn't enable me to Mm -hmm. connect through to see my online my online banking information alongside my accounting or I tried to three times and it or it's unstable so we're seeing that start to happen so I think the kind of users voting with their feet and leaving banks will put pressure on banks to improve and I think the premium API Shafali says is kind of a good argument for pay us and we'll improve it I think that will happen through customer leakage lack of retention do, do you think there is a role for premium APIs though I think I think there might be but I think I personally think it will get driven by third parties innovating. Back to, for bank, it's got to work economically. Banks can only charge where there's value. I think there's something interesting to me in and around, uh, I'd love it to be free, but the um, identifiable information, Simon mentioned, kind of name and address. There's a whole market called the credit bureaus that have built themselves on owning our name and address data and charging a lot for it. And your voting status and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but mainly kind of they make an awful lot of money out of ID services because they're Mm -hmm. the only place where my name and address is kind of sat, Mm -hmm. accessible, verified and contributed to. I think there's a massive opportunity that if banks got their act together, um, they can make it a third of the price or half the price. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, then you might you might pay for that and you could probably make it all go round. Kieran, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I think um, when it comes to this idea of like premium API, when you start to introduce those kind of things, it doesn't feel like open banking anymore. It starts to feel like more of a, a, a commercial endeavor. And I think if Monzo were ever to do that, we have no plans, but um, it, we, we would almost like rather just you know, do our own thing and do it properly and not necessarily like do it the way the standards have done it. We we design our own like bespoke system. I think for us, um, the incentive is is less about money. Um, we, we don't have as many people as, for example, big banks do. Um, and every time there's problems, that generates like a lot of work for Monzo. Uh, so there's actually a strong incentive for Monzo to like apply reductivity measures and optimize things and make the APIs much faster. So when our AP, uh, open banking APIs first launched, uh, the response times were broadly consistent with the big banks. Um, around a second to res- to respond to a given request, and now we've brought that right down to 150 milliseconds, which is 10 times better than some of the other big banks. Uh, so we are putting a lot of effort into improving these, uh, but the the incentive is not money. Well, it's, it's saving money rather than making money, I suppose. That's still an incentive for many banks. Yes, yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> um, let's talk a teeny bit about strong customer authentication. Uh, I have banged on about this for a very long time, but. Um, I mean, it, it was pushed back because the industry as a whole just wasn't ready, hadn't got their act together in time, and, and they were working on very short deadlines. Um, do you think it's had, it will have or has already had any impact on, on open banking when you're looking at things like payment initiation, you know, particularly if we're talking about having to, to authenticate a payment from within an app previously hasn't been done, or designing those new payment flows that are trying to I use I don't know, because I've used Monzo for five years now, pretty much, as my only bank. But I did see that HSBC thing the other day that made everybody laugh so much. <laughs> I had already left First Direct because I had an email telling me what was coming. And what came was even worse than the email that told me. So I went full Monzo because of First Direct. For anyone that doesn't know, HSBC changed their the way you send money. So you have to use the little pin calculator sentry thing. And you have to Which type is going in, backwards, by the way. Just going backwards. And I you have they to got type rid in of that. No, no. Well, we that, did, but they brought them back. You oh, now have to type in the, the, the amount of money you want to send, including pence, and the numbers in the reference number? I mean, like, I'm good with computers, and I couldn't do that, you know, if you asked me to do it five times in a row correctly. But was that UK to UK or international? Anything. Tra- Anything. Really? Um, I'm the HSBC classifier. I don't and even the example was, way, like, yeah. if you want to send £30.99, pence, then type these... Ugh. Oh, God. And then, the, the, I mean, the, the really obvious thing was, if you want to put £30, you had to put 3000 <laughs> after four other digits. I mean, the uh, likelihood of you going 3000 
with you know is is very clear and, and they'll um, blame the regulation too they'll blame, well, they'll blame SCA the but like that's not SCA like Monzo has a perfectly legal fantastic implementation of SCA that involves you know using your, th- your fingerprint and occasionally typing your pin number in the other the other one that's particularly good just whilst we're on HSBC and Thursday right and I'm sure other banks have done bad jobs as well this is the one I know about is that you don't actually have time to um to you have to generate a code using your app and then you have to go and enter that code in to authenticate the payment but the code expires quicker than you can get back round to the app to type it in and in fact we have sat in the office and and we're all we're all good at <laughs> typing numbers into phone quickly around here and nobody could do it sca it doesn't need to be bad monzo's no. sca implementation is 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 fine. There's a few things that are counterintuitive, like you, like when you, you first authenticate. I'm always. I'm always. Well, I, I mean, the things that annoyed me that I that I pushed back on. Obviously, Monzo's compliance team is smarter than me, but the things like you can only get the full um, account information for the first five minutes. At the mm. time, I was like, that's so incredibly annoying, and it's going to annoy AISPs. And but now that I think about it, now that I'm on the on the other side, and I've talked to <coughs> AISPs, they're like, no, we just cache the. We just cache that data and then we just fetch the updates. So I think SCA um, wasn't terrible. It really annoys me that I, I can't – I have to type my PIN number in on my card um, after a certain number of times. Like mm. the actual in-person card use SCA I think is terrible. I it's just, as bad as that you use cookie warning. <laughs> I've stopped using – I haven't used my physical card in so Same. long that Same. I've sort of forgotten that's a thing. But recently, and this is a complete sidebar, um, I use Google Pay, but the uh, the – at the station I get off at, the readers have stopped recognizing it. So every journey I have is unfinished. Oh, wow. Uh, which is a whole other problem. Mm-hmm. But uh, the solution to the card thing is just to use Google or Apple Pay. I think SCA is kind of a classic example of unintended consequences of regulation. So yeah. I think it's there for a good reason, but it has it has been implemented pretty badly in some places. I think there's some, Simon's kind of picking up some good news that now there's quite mature and ever maturing third parties mm-hmm. that we um, kind of survive through workaround or we survive through solving these problems and smoothing them out. So I think um, the, the classic example yet that, that Simon articulated there that we encountered was I can only get transactional information going backwards for a few seconds and then every time I want to access that ongoing I can only get 90 days going backwards so I have to learn how to we've got pretty good at stitching transactions together Mm-hmm. There would be a simple solution for banks. They could just implement and share transaction IDs. They choose not to. But I guess it, it's problems that can be solved through third parties. Um, so I don't get too worried about um, kind of SCA. I do think it's interesting and it's probably yet to really um, hit in the kind of PISP payment initiation area where there's big hopes for PISP to make payments uh, more convenient and frictionless. And there's a risk that SCA kind of is in con conflict with that I think that's yet to play out uh, yeah I, I can see and I think a lot of people are worried about uh, the unintended consequence being a significant amount of friction introduced across all payment journeys and um, particularly things like PISP which is supposed to uh, make them make them better um Okay, I'm going to be blunt. Simon's asked me to ask him a question, which doesn't happen very often. I thought I was in charge of the questions around here, but he wants to talk about uh, CAS. So the current Ollie just reminded service. me about not having transaction IDs. And one of the things that I've become increasingly concerned about recently is that when people switch bank accounts, they cl- like the current account switching service closes your old bank, and then you lose access to all of your bank old bank data. So we've been. The, I, got, the, I got mine. Yeah. In, in a file, mm-hmm. an Excel yeah, file. But the thing it was... is, it doesn't have transaction IDs, and those transaction right. IDs aren't signed cryptographically. So. So no, no one can rely on them. It is an Excel file. I think the good thing is, Faith Reynolds was mentioned earlier. I know that she's working closely with the um, current account switching service because I spoke to them the other day about actually, and that is where people are on the front foot thinking about this from a regulation or a customer perspective, which is, so what's happened, we want open banking to enable switching of bank accounts. Well, that was the competition's kind of mandate. Uh, it hasn't happened, but we could come on to that. But um, if they want that to happen, you need to think through that customer journey. And it's another example where they were suddenly panicking on, so if I switch bank account uh, today with the way open banking works, I'll lose all the consents I've given to my third parties. So I could mm. be using a great PFM with five different banks connected in. I switch one of those banks accounts out and then I lose all of that historic information, the consent and all the data that goes mm. with it. But with a credit reference agency, imagine people have spent five years building up their credit reference score and then someone, something like their entire credit history just gets erased. Yeah, well, you deleted. moved house and they didn't make the link. Exactly. And they just lose it. That's the same as what's going to happen with open banking data. If you just lose access to all of your data, it's just gone. Mm. Like that needs to be addressed, I think, pretty quickly. 
Oh, I know they're working on it, which is great, but again, it doesn't sound straightforward and actually it's not possible technically today. So back to the point about sort of the standards needing ongoing iteration and, and input. I think they say, again, it's a phased process. That problem only comes about when you get customer adoption and people start to switch and you go, oh, how do I switch the data as well yeah. or the consent? As well, well? It's, it's one of those problems that you didn't foresee, but these things are going to happen. So, you know, we're going to have to find our way around them. And then, as you say, it's a good sign. More people switching is a good sign. It's what the FCA wanted in the first place. Um, talking about, you know, some of the problems we've seen elsewhere, um, Shivali, you mentioned mm. earlier, you sort of kind of looked at um, particularly Australia, but yes. I'm sure you're looking broader than that as yes. well. Um, what are some of the things that you, you uh, as true layer have learned or you personally have learned from, from what else you've seen out there? I mean, particularly interested, and we talk quite a lot about Australia and the, the consumer data right on this show because we, we know quite a lot about it. Um, but particularly interested if you have any thoughts on what's happening in the States because there's quite a lot happening there with open APIs without the regulatory twist on it. Well, I think that America has other problems at the moment, uh, not open banking. And so, uh, sorry, that's me being very facetious. But uh, the what we found in certainly in Australia and further east is the consumer awareness is really heightened. And so what we didn't do very well, I don't think, as an industry over 2018 and even before in preparation for open banking was really talk about, well, how is this really going to affect consumers? And... I remember being with the FCA and helping them draft a letter to consumers, which came out about five months after open banking launched. And so those little things, which is what is it really going to be of value to you as a consumer, as an end user? How are you doing all of those things? I think CDR is a really interesting um, uh, regulation that's coming in. They've pushed it back, as you all know, because of security reasons. And again, that's good. That's healthy because get it right and do it well so that when we are launching and it's fully fledged, that everybody who's participating in it is in on the same standards and it's been done in a very robust and diligent way. I think with America, you know, Plaid, as you, I think you mentioned Plaid earlier, Sarah, I mean, they're a great business and they're great people um, and they've been able to operate in America, seemingly, I mean, there is no regulation there. There is no fintech charter. There, that's taken ages to come. It was talked about in 2015 and 16. It has, hasn't really happened. So I think the world uh, that America works in, and certainly in the banking sector, is you've got 15 to 2,000 small itty-bitty banks that we all have to connect to. They're all very clunky. They're all very painful. And Plaid has done a terrific job to get all of those connections in. You kind of then wonder, well, what's next, really? Because every other entity is building products off Plaid as opposed to Plaid building products. And Mm -hmm. I think if the regulation comes in, um, it's going to be quite clunky, I think. It's going to take a while. And again, as you may all know, uh, America is state by state. Yes. So what California does, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what, you know, Illinois is going to do or New York is going to do. So that makes the complexity of this whole um, adventure really, really difficult. And then when you look at, you know, we were saying earlier that being in a workshop for technical standards was really, you know, I just want to kill myself with a blunt spoon. But this was, and again, that's an exaggeration. But um, when you think about the state by state, that's going to be hard. And if you have to then be a player here trying to actually build great products, seamless products, which you want to sell, have connectivity, make money off it, um, and really enhance people's lives, that endeavor becomes really hard because of all the bureaucracy and the red tape that one has to go through. So, so I think I think it's a challenge across the world, really. So um, just really quickly, which countries does Trilla work in? Because you're, you're across we're, quite right. a few, aren't you? We're, we're in the UK and in Germany, and we're looking at Europe for the rest of the year and a bit of Asia. Okay. Um, I could talk about this for hours, but I'm fully aware that people might not want to listen to it for hours, and I'm fully aware that my production team should probably be allowed to go home at some point. (laughs) Um, Before we do that, can I ask each of you to quickly give me a kind of a what's next? What does the future look like for open banking? So that could be open banking broadly. It could be, you know, your own personal plans if there's something that, you know, uh, you guys are are working on that's a new feature or proposition that's based on open banking. Uh, Who wants to go first? I'm happy to, do, to go first. Go for it, um, So I'll talk a bit about like, Monzo's like um, future, how we think about this. Um, so I spoke earlier about how banks kind of approach open banking from the perspective of a bank, but also from the perspective of a, an, an, a, an ASP and a PISP. Um, and I certainly think that Monzo can, can get a lot of value out of that second point. So that's what we're focusing on now. Um, and I think what we have to remember is that open banking is, 
it's not a feature in and of itself, but it is a tool with which we can sort of build novel features and also like improve our existing features as well that we have on Monzo. Um, and I think third parties get that, but right now banks don't don't understand that fully. Um, so, I mean, some banks are, are already doing things like account aggregation. Um, I don't think anybody has really like nailed it yet. Um, and I think my team are in a really good position to do that. So that's what we're focusing on this quarter and probably next quarter. Brilliant. And we will look forward to it. Oli? Uh, yeah, in terms of what's next for open banking for me, I think there's a lot to come around stitching both AIS and PIS together. By that, I mean kind of the reason to move money. So identifying a reason to move money and then doing it really frictionally. So uh, Friction-free, uh, Friction-free, <laughs> for the correction. I guess for us, uh, in our Tully product, that looks like helping people understand what's gone wrong with their repayments and then helping them with the repayment. So mm-hmm. using both of those bits of the legislation together is really exciting. Show, showing them perhaps where they should move money most of, to yeah. be most efficient. And then helping them move it really easily. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. I think then, for me, the future is the kind of journey from open banking to open finance to open data. And really kind of building on this, look what's possible when you do make data open in a super secure way. And all, then you start thinking about all the data that is locked up. And I might sound like a broken record, but kind of within the credit bureau. Let's get that out of there. Let's get all the, fin- the my full financial situation out. And you'll look at just um, building on great use cases and value that's being delivered already and just exponentially grow that for users. So I think that's, for me, it's kind of how do you uh, build on the fact we've done a great job of open banking and just get that to open data as fast as possible. Brilliant. Simon, I'm almost scared to ask. <laughs> <laughs> no, for us at Fronted, it's going to be about building a business off the back of open banking. It's going to be about um, helping consumers um, use the access to their data to to lower the cost of borrowing for for what we're trying to do, for helping people move into to rental apartments and basically using open banking to help get people up onto the sort of credit ladder. So, so the credit bureau idea is quite, you mm. know, you're quite fond yeah. of that as well. <laughs> yeah, like we hope that open banking will allow us to avoid over-indebtedness in a way that um, credit bureaus are supposed to do now but don't do a great job of. And it'll help us extend credit to people who may have never had credit before or have thin credit files because we can genuinely look at the over-indebtedness and look at their financial health and, and make safe decisions about um, helping them get that rental deposit together. And then we will be reporting to the credit um, bureaus and we hope that this will provide a sort of less like lumpy onboarding experience for people to start their financial lives. Okay. We look forward to seeing that as well. Shafali, how about Ooh, you? I, I mean, I concur with these gentlemen. I, and I think what we're really optimistic about is the adoption. And I think we're really excited about the products and services that are going to be built off what we build and, and truly. And, you know, we are the connectivity layer. We're the intermediary. Um, and we are a B2B business. So we're really excited to see what our clients build. Um, and I've got to say, as a consumer, I'm super excited. And perhaps more more European. Uh, oh, absolutely! I mean, that's a given. So the opportunity we have for our UK clients uh, to look elsewhere in Europe and either further east, even uh, of what Trulia is building, is very exciting. And and you know, the other thing to say is the use cases are quite vast. So it doesn't necessarily mean that what some of our clients in the UK use our product for is the same in in France or in Germany or in um, Singapore. And that's quite phenomenal. So for us, it's also a great learning experience. Brilliant. Um, All right. Well, that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you all so much for joining me. Where can people find out more about you uh, and your companies? So Twitter handles, website, LinkedIn. Uh, Shafali, let's go around this way this time. Oh, great. Um, For me, it's just Shafali Roy at Trulia. Uh, I mean, Shafali at Trulia for my email, um, trulia.com and uh, at Shafali Roy for Twitter. Perfect. Thank you. If you don't already follow um, Fronted, we're at Get Fronted on Twitter or fronted.xyz or you can follow me, Simon VC, on Twitter. Perfect. Ollie? Yeah, you can find me, Ollie Betts, on LinkedIn. It's the best place to get me, thebusinessopenworks.com. And Kieran, how about you? So I'm a prolific tweeter, so you can find my <laughs> Twitter, uh, Kieran, M-C-H, K-I-E-R-A-N-M-C-H. Okay, and if you don't know where to find Monzo, then I give up. <laughs> um, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. You can also find me uh, blogging about open banking on the 11FS website. Uh, thank you for listening. If you want to join the discussion, please find us on social media, on at Fintech Insiders on Twitter or on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Periscope and YouTube. We'd love to hear your thoughts on everything we just discussed. Just search 11FS. As usual, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you really love us, please leave us a review. That's all for this week. Goodbye.